Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the road to paying off your technical debt. Time to press pause on one of GSA's biggest initiatives and one source for tech delivery at the Labor Department. It's Thursday, October 6th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The State Department's new chief information officer is coming from the Pentagon. Dr. Kelly Fletcher will leave her job as Principal Deputy Chief Information Officer at DOD. The acting CIO at State, Glenn Miller, is leaving government at the end of the year. Agencies should aim for a 12% goal for awarding contracts to small disadvantaged businesses in fiscal 2023, according to new guidance from the Office of Management and Budget. That's 1% more than the goal for last fiscal year. OMB writes the new goal is a step toward the Biden administration's long-term goal of 15% of contracts going to small disadvantaged businesses. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Leaders from the Defense Department, CISA, and lots of other government agencies are coming to Cyber Talks this year. It's happening Thursday, October 20th at the Waldorf Astoria in downtown D.C. You can find a link to the agenda and sign up in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. More than 80% of federal government IT spending goes to legacy infrastructure and applications. It's forcing federal chief information officers to look for ways to address their technical debt loads. Joe Klimovich is managing director at KPMG. He's former chief information officer at the Department of Justice. Joe, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I flagged for you a blog post by Gundeep Alawalia, the chief information officer at Labor. And the beginning of this says the term technical debt has various meanings. One of the Labor Department folks asks Gundeep for his definition of technical debt. And Gundeep says this, technical debt refers to resulting issues from any software and IT applications that are no longer effective and efficient. Is that the same definition you would use as a federal CIO? Joe, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Francis, first, uh, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, I like his two points, but I would go beyond these two points. Uh, to me, the adoption of uh, modern digital uh, technologies uh, creates the potential to improve services, yes, uh, enhance cybersecurity, but also rapidly create value and reduce costs. Uh, as you mentioned, um, you know, 80% roughly of the overall IT spend goes to operations and maintenance in the federal uh, government. And that's because these legacy systems are, are very expensive to operate. Um, and it's easy to uh, keep the, the lights on, keep the legacy systems going year after year, um, but supporting these legacy technologies carries costs that sometimes uh, don't get uh, publicized or they go unrecognized. And I think we have a lost opportunity here to improve the customer experience, uh, the user experience. You um, talk about keeping the lights on, and I think there was a perception for a long time that it was easier or lower risk to just keep doing what you're doing. And we've learned over the last maybe three to five years, I think it's become more well understood in the CIO community. That's actually a higher risk to keep some of this older stuff going than it is to undertake a digital transformation, isn't it, Joe? It is. And I think you know one of the ways that uh, CIOs get asked to move on is they don't provide uh, cutting edge services. They don't provide quality services. And to me, uh, today, everyone expects a converged experience. Um, and that's really not possible with 
a lot of these legacy systems. And I think CIOs need to take a hard look at their outdated infrastructure. Um, there's, there's just a lot of things that uh, uh, that legacy it may feel good, <laughs> but uh, it creates a lot of uh, risk. Um, Gundeep cites the Mine Safety and Health Administration as an example in his blog post. And he writes in the case, of, or he says, in the case of MSHA, if an application doesn't work in a mine without connectivity or provide inspection history to a mine inspector during a routine visit, then we've encountered an instance of technical debt. You and I talked a long time ago about a similar experience that you have had at NOAA when you were the CIO at NOAA. And you had a lot of external customers that were relying on data from the agency and so on. And I don't know if we named it customer experience years back when we were talking about it, Joe, but that's really what it was, wasn't it? It was thinking about not just the way that people inside an agency use the information or access the network, but the way that any external uh, stakeholders are interacting with that stuff too. Absolutely. Um, And I like to to keep the the user experience and the customer experience together because whether it's the internal user and at NOAA, we had ships and planes and lots of very uh, far off remote uh, locations that uh, had to use services. And a lot of times they didn't have much bandwidth. They didn't have the the network to support uh, a good user experience. And then the the same thing with the customers. Um, uh, Customers are coming in from all over the country uh, trying to access the information and they expect it uh, to be up. They expect it to, to be able to get to the information uh, that they're looking for easily. Uh, and that's sometimes uh, with all of our websites and databases, not easy. The bottom line here is money, Joe. You've got to be able to move money, as you described earlier, from the blocking and tackling stuff to modernization. Gundeep talks about that when he got to labor in 2016. of the money that he had went to modernization and development. He's got that up to 25 and his goal is to move to 40. What are the techniques that a CIO has or what are the key partnerships that a CIO needs to leverage to be able to make that move? Well, Francis, it's no secret that uh, the CIO's best friend is the CFO. And uh, you have to be able to make the, the business case to the CFO and to the leadership of your agency uh, that you need to make the right investments. And uh, one thing that I like to do, and um, this was some success in, in justice, is defining technical debt or measuring technical debt. And there's probably many ways to do this, but one way that we did in our IT portfolio was adding the design point uh, date and the IOC date to each system. Um, by this way, you can determine whether you're your operational systems are getting older or you're able to retire more of them, but you can, you've got some kind of quantitative way of um, assessing the age of your installed base. Now, I think the cloud and uh, low code platforms have made it a lot easier to go fast and to, um, to, you know, to modernize, to digit, you know, bring in this digital transformation. But um, you know, there's, it's not without issue. And one of the biggest challenges you have with um, bringing in new uh, systems to replace legacy is uh, you may have to operate a legacy and a a new system together that can add additional cost in that transition period. But you also have to worry about data synchronization, you know, and and you're running uh, 
uh, databases and your new platform, your new solution and your legacy. Now you can, with today's technology and architectures, you can abstract the data from the infrastructure and that can help with this issue. But um, you know, I think that's something you have to factor in. But again, uh, being able to explain quantitatively the benefit uh, to your CFO will help you uh, in the in the budget process. You mentioned cloud and, and low-code platforms. Are there other things that are on the horizon that CIOs maybe don't have access to yet, but should be learning about today that will help them get to these higher goals of, uh, of devoting more money to transformation rather than to maintaining their legacy stuff? Well, Francis, I think one of the hottest topics right now in the federal government and, and in the commercial as well is artificial intelligence. Um, every, every, everybody wants to go faster with AI, uh, but AI is also embedded in, in almost every new uh, technology platform. But I think one of the things that uh, uh, people overlook is the importance of data and to AI or other uh, digital transformations. And uh, you know, I've said many times, you've heard me say this many times, after your workforce, uh, data is your most important asset. And I continue seeing that, that if you don't have a good data strategy, data architecture, data investment plan, um, and you're not addressing data quality issues, uh, none of these technology platforms are going to help a whole lot. You're still going to be uh, very limited in terms of what you can do. Joe, it's great to get insight from you as always on something like this. I appreciate your time today. Thanks very much. Thank you, Francis. You can find a link to Gundeep's blog post about technical debt in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Programming note that Monday's a federal holiday, so it'll be a holiday for the Daily Scoop podcast, too. You'll get a new show Tuesday, and you can find that show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and always at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The General Services Administration should cancel the transactional data reporting pilot because of pricing problems, according to GSA's Office of Inspector General. The IG says the pilot doesn't, quote, result in viable pricing methodology after a six-year test run. Joe Jordan's president and CEO of Actaparo. He's former administrator of federal procurement policy. Joe, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. The point that strikes me that maybe the inspector general's trying most to make here is that six-year point. They've been trying this for a while and haven't gotten the data that the IG thinks they should have. What's your read on this? And why were you reading this during Monday Night Football, of all things? Welcome, my friend. Well, thanks, Francis. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I mean, some of this data that the IG says that GSA needs to um, make the transactional data reporting, the TDR pilot worthwhile, um, may never be gettable. Uh, and that doesn't mean that this isn't a much better way to ensure agencies are getting good value and good cost versus the prior uh, CSP price reduction clause method, which was incredibly burdensome, is incredibly burdensome to businesses. And, uh, you know, that also is, as the IG says in this report, that also was never clear that it drove best pricing or best cost to federal agencies. Um, I, I viewed this as a, an incredibly flawed report. Um, there, there are some points we can all agree with, which is, 
you know, improvements in the way that GSA operates its incredibly valuable multiple award schedules program, um, you know, are good for everyone and available and more work should be done. But I just thought this was this was a suboptimal analysis. All right. Before we get to that, where what are the improvements that you think are kind of widely accepted would be useful for the multiple award schedules? Sure. So uh, GSA points out in um, Fast Commissioner Sonny Hashmi's response, who is a great guy and very, very smart. Uh, they say, hey, as you know, FAR 8404D says that as long as agencies follow, um, you know, the right ordering practices, then buying off of the schedule definitionally represents the best value and results in lowest overall cost alternative, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So what often the way that's often interpreted by contracting officers is cool. I don't have to do any additional negotiation um, work to ensure before I place an order off the schedule to ensure my agency, my customers getting best value. And, and I think that's a place, I, that's a place I personally spent a bunch of time. Uh, and, and it's a place where I think everyone agrees that work to be done. Now GSA is sensitive to that because you got to think they get 0.75% of every dollar that flows through the schedule. And we're talking about, 50 to $60 billion a year that flows through an annual spending that flows through the multiple war schedule. So, you know, they are very incented in a profit type way to have as much flow through this vehicle as possible. So they might take kind of rosier colored glasses on this issue than, than I do, or than um, many folks in the procurement policy arena. But I think even they would admit that that more can be done to um, share the responsibility of getting best value between the contract administrators at GSA and the contracting officers who are ordering through that vehicle. All right, the title of this work, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes today at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Fast Federal Acquisition Service cannot provide assurance that multiple award schedule contract pricing results in orders achieving the lowest overall cost alternative. Based on what you've laid out so far and in your sphere of knowledge over the years that you've been in, in the government space, forget about the IG report and forget about what GSA is doing now. What gets to that orders achieving the lowest overall cost alternative? What gets the CO to that on an individual basis or what gets GSA as an, an organization or any other uh, provider of acquisition vehicles across government, what gets them to that, um, to that bottom line, which is how can I be sure I'm getting the best price I can possibly get? Uh, great question, Francis. And also, so there were two different words that you use there and that I do, and we all use when we talk about this, which is, Cost and price, they're not the same thing. Okay. They are obviously closely correlated, but you know, there are a host of administrative costs that agencies incur to go out and find uh, commercial providers of the goods and services that that agency needs to fulfill their mission. Things like the multiple work schedule and other indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contracts help reduce that administrative burden, drive some efficiency there because instead of the contracting officer having to go look for those uh, available companies every single time, there are places they can go and see a set of pre-approved companies who provide these goods and services. And so, you know, you really need to think about how can we lower that administrative burden on businesses, lower the administrative costs that agencies occur, incur to find those businesses, while also making sure that we don't winnow the field so much that it becomes a captured market by a few 
businesses who then increase their prices to a level that offsets those cost savings. And so that's where that's why I'm supportive of the TDR, which is not perfect, because I feel like it very clearly has moved down a path where we're trying to say, hey, businesses, especially innovative small businesses who aren't already in our government supply chain, this is an avenue for you to be able to get the position to provide your great goods and services to the government. In government, you should negotiate those prices at the appropriate uh, moments to ensure that you're getting best value in a, in a pricing that reflects best spot market pricing given the volume and the government unique needs you may be placing on those businesses. All right. You cited Sonny Hashmi a few minutes ago, who was the first uh, ever government guest, by the way, on the Daily Scoop podcast. So uh, shout out to Sonny. Uh, But this report says the FAST commissioner disagreed with the conclusions of this report and three of the four recommendations. One of these recommendations, it's the language is um, rather, you know, it's not spectacular it's not um it's not confrontational or anything like that but as i read it two or three four times not during monday night football like you did by the way uh because i have a life um but it one of these recommendations struck me as pretty remarkable inform customer agencies that they should perform separate and independent price determinations because replying on mass contract pricing and following the ordering procedures in the far may not ensure compliance that orders and contracts result in the lowest overall cost alternative. I mean, that sounds to me like the recommendation is for Sonny to tell his customers, don't use our data because it's no good. And you should go off and do your own data research, which is completely contrary to, strikes me as completely contrary to my understanding of one of the benefits of using the schedule. Yeah, exactly right. And first of all, when there's a battle between football minds like uh, McVay and Shanahan, I'm going to tune in even if I need to do my prep on a highly flawed 35-page OIG report so I can have a good conversation with you more. So, God bless I, you, Jordan. You're the best. I, I no, no shame in my game on that one. Now, you are absolutely right. That is a classic completely unworkable IG solution that reduces in their minds all risk while in no way finding middle ground. What it's saying is exactly what you said. Hey, agencies, we know that you put, again, 50 to $60 billion a year in purchases through these vehicles in large part because their pricing is deemed fair and reasonable for quantity of one by the far. But instead We're going to skip right through the part that Joe said a minute ago where you should do some additional legwork and negotiation and go right to throw out everything that GSA has done, all the administrative benefit that I outlined before, and do everything over again yourself each time. Like, just a ridiculous recommendation, obviously uh, disagreed with by Fast Commissioner Hashmi, but also, I mean, who puts that down in paper? All right. uh, Let's... Set aside then the Inspector General report, and what what gets GSA in your view to the desired outcome that we talked about earlier, which is helping agencies understand. And thank you, by the way, for the distinction between cost and price. You're exactly right, and I think you've explained that to me before. So shame on me for not retaining that knowledge. But um, what gets GSA and what gets the customer agencies to the ultimate desired outcome here? Yeah, so I think continuing along the path that GSA has undergone for the last, you know, 
decade or so of consolidating the schedules into one kind of universal vehicle with common requirements about how do you get onto that vehicle? How do you remain on that vehicle? How do you uh, ensure that or, or give the government assurances that the pricing you're providing through that vehicle is quite good um, and all of those sorts of things so that it, it really is a chance for us to have the one of the best um, kind of analogs to commercial buying where it's, hey, you know, right now, this is the price that the prices that uh, top vendors are willing to provide to us for these goods or services. We at NHC think, you know, this one or these three that we're going to do some additional negotiation with represent the best value. And we're going to go forward down that path. And everything that they can do to onboard as many more small businesses as possible to limit the reporting burden while also ensuring that nobody's gaming the system. You know, that's the tough part. There's always more money in figuring out how to comply with the letter of law while violating the spirit of it than there is enforcing it. So, you, you know, got to create these various checks. Why not use more AI? I know it's an overused, you know, phrase, but use more data intelligence tools uh, to compare and contrast all sorts of pricing, not just within the schedule. And, and GSA is doing some of that. And they note that in their response but also across all sorts of vehicles. Like I want to see a rack and stack of everything bought through soup and chess and, you know, say LSP three and four and, you know, Oasis versus schedule, all those sorts of things and say, okay, well, here are how these things are shaking out. And then continue to act like a four-year-old with pattern recognition and just say, why, why, why? And that's how we'll get to the best outcomes for agencies and taxpayers. Joe Jordan, great to talk to you as always. God bless you. You're you're a warrior for doing this during Monday Night Football. Thank you, my friend. Love it, Francis. Thanks for having me. You can find a link to the GSAIG report in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Labor Department's IT shared services effort is in its fourth year now. Agency leaders say it's providing a foundation for zero trust. Paul Blahush is the Chief Information Security Officer at the Labor Department. He tells FedScoop's Wyatt Cash how that effort supports the agency's zero-trust journey. Except for um, a few notables where there was a policy or separation need to keep them separate, everything came under the OCIF. Also, over the last several years, we've been investing in the plumbing or underpinnings of zero-trust, I call it. There's been investments in identity credentialing and access management, in migrating to the cloud, whether it's Microsoft Office applications, other software as a service, or even custom applications that we're, we've done platform or infrastructure as a service out in the cloud. Um, investment in SIM and SOAR technologies uh, and becoming mobile ready, which sure helped us during the, the, the pandemic. Um, so that was all kind of pre-EO. Now, after the executive order of May 2021, certainly the zero trust thing became important. So we established a zero trust architecture integrated project under our enterprise architecture group. Security, what I represent, we were sort of positioned ourselves as the customer. We set requirements and EA was going to develop the solution. Now, this IPT has a project management office and assigned subject matter experts under the various pillars of zero trust. They've developed an overall strategy um, that I think the, the, the key component of it is a secure access service edge or SASE overlay. So that's, that's in the past. So looking forward for the next year, 
Um, for us, zero trust is revolutionary, not evolutionary. And I think what I mean by that is it's going to be an architectural change for us that's going to take resources. It's going to take technology. It's going to take people. It's going to take uh, professional services. And there's going to be this transition period when much like if you were building a new house, you still need to live somewhere while you're building the new one. So you can imagine we're going to have costs of our current, cost of what we're going to, and for a while, they're going to be duplicative. So we need resources to do this. So that's all setting up to say my number one priority, if I was doing it for this, for current and, and, and looking forward a few months, maybe into a year, is to identify this fund. Um, looking for supplemental funding in the FY23-24 budget, unused funds, technology modernization funds, sort of the source and how much we can obtain there really dictates what we can do and how fast we can do it. Now, putting all that boring funding stuff aside, right? So what at a minimum are we, are we doing that? Well, we're, we're continuing, no matter if we get additional funding or not, we have to continue to lay that groundwork, that, that, that plumbing, completing things about ICAM, completing things with uh, data encryption, moving ahead as we can with the zero trust strategy to the extent possible. And, and in that way, leveraging existing modernization efforts to say, hey, you know, please align with these principles of zero trust as you're modernizing your system. Um, I think that um, if we do get the additional funding, we can certainly move ahead quicker and, and with both the ICAM and the encryption pieces. And really what we, we, we want to do is take that idea of getting that SASE overlay, go into a pilot, and then move that forward. That, that's going to be the big thing. Now, longer term, you're looking about three years out, and I'm going to put on some rose-colored glasses funding. I get funding to do this. So we're going to be in a good place then, I think. We, our plans show that we can have that SASE in place and mature across the enterprise, across the enterprise, um, including, at least in some fashion, in those independent infrastructure agencies I was talking about who didn't come under shared services. Our, our ICAM solutions, that's with an S on the end, will be complete and leveraged for determining uh, the trust of identity for all authenticated connections, both internal uh, um, employees and contractors, as well as partners and the public where they need an authenticated access. We'll be using other factors to make trust decisions, whether it's data, device, network, workload, et cetera. Um, we'll, and I'll add this in too, we'll have found a cost-effective solution to meet those logging requirements of M2131. I hope that answered the question. No, I appreciate you're going through uh, both the near and long-term and you raise a really key point about the, um, uh, the level of funding probably isn't where it needs to be to meet all of the requirements. And so it's, CISOs like yourself being very creative and finding those resources. But clearly one of the other issues we often hear is, you know, how is a, a department like yours um, planning to implement zero trust principles across multiple um, uh, departments or bureaus within the Department of Labor, multiple networks, domains, and even functional silos? 
Wow, such a great question. Thing, um, certainly very very important. We didn't want to go into this having each of our components creating their own path. We we thought that was that that was going to hit a dead end eventually in being able to really realize the benefits of a zero trust architecture. Now, what I talked about, and, and I'm glad I mentioned this in previously, is about our enterprise shared services and consulting a lot of the IT under OCIO. Now, just because everything's consolidated under the OCIO doesn't mean those things are easy to do. There's still a lot of, uh, of different priorities and personalities involved there too. But it's to bring those along. 80% is consolidated under one network, under one basic infrastructure there, which makes this a little bit easier to manage. Now for the other 20%, I really think it comes down to making sure that this enterprise strategy that we've developed is inclusive, meaning we didn't develop it in our 80% stovepipe, Wyatt, right? We said, hey, you other folks who aren't part of shared services, come along in here. Let's make sure that we're, we're considering your needs, your concerns, and your ideas. So we developed the strategy that's got principles in it and not necessarily a specific solution. Um, I do think that this is where the human aspect of IT comes in, right? So we, we, we need to partner and dialogue and collaborate with these other groups. And it's about relationships and it's about trust. You know, if we have told these groups, hey, we're gonna consider your needs and concerns, we can't turn around and then not consider them when we create the architecture. We need to be true to what we've, we're promising. Um, but I do believe that they all see that this is, this is going to improve their ability to perform their mission. So everything's about mission. And we can also certainly point to that executive order. And they know that it's, a, it's not only a good idea, it's a requirement. Right? Um, but we need to ensure these enterprise solutions are designed to appeal to their needs. And you know, certainly wide. I'm, I'm more a type of a CISO who I, I'd rather have our, our partners in the Department of Labor come along willingly and, and excited about this than, than, than me pulling them kicking and screaming into a, uh, you know, architecture that, that they don't want to be part of. But that's how we, we've been doing it. Paul, as you know, uh, it'd be one thing if zero trust was just kind of implemented uh, from scratch but we're living in an environment where federal agencies still have a lot of additional compliance requirements uh, as they approach cybersecurity, much of which is codified by law. What concerns do you have about uh, federal zero trust adoption to ensure that agencies are actually able to achieve comprehensive versus piecemeal check the box security protections? Oh, great point. Um, so, my opinion, there is no benefit to putting in this effort and the money that's involved with it to check some compliance boxes. Our adversaries don't care about how we are doing with compliance boxes, right? Our, 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 our adversaries in the, out in the world aren't looking to see, well, how did you do on your last audit? We better be doing this to improve the protection of data and services to our stakeholders, whether they're internal or external. That's the key reason to do this. Um, I, I often talk to my, my, my friends and colleagues here about that, uh, 
are first and foremost, we need to be protecting the agency systems and data. And if we can check a few boxes by doing that, that's great. But our focus needs to be on protecting the systems and data. Now, that being said, I think we're all aware, and I'm as guilty of it as anyone else, what gets measured and rewarded or punished gets attention. We all realize that. So uh, it is important that, that OMB and, and DHS, uh, you know, specifically CIS and DHS, and our OIG partners need to make sure that what they're measuring are the protections and security rather than sort of a, a by the book is everything got the right signatures, is, is our records, you know, all those types of things. Let's make sure we're looking at security and protections. Now, a couple of initiatives are underway that I think are encouraging that I, I, I've been um, honored to be involved in. And one is OMB has an IT requirements working group that's um, going through all the historical and current uh, M memos and executive orders and everything else and, and, and making sure that what's in there is still meaningful today and reflects current priorities. And where it's not, they're either being rescinded or they're being updated. So I think this, this, that's gonna be helpful in kind of removing some of those uh, compliance requirements that aren't really meaningful anymore. Also another group's working to right size and define the, the controls that are assessed in the OIG FISMA audits. Um, you may know that in the past, for the past year, that was defined what the core set was, which was about a third of the total number of controls. And, and we were looking to do that core set to be the ones that were most closely aligned with the executive order and other current initiatives. So I think there's some more work to be done in that area, but that's moving in the right direction, I, I think, as well. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's uh, good to hear. Uh, and then lastly, Paul, how is your department planning to unify automation and orchestration across the so-called five pillars of zero trust uh, to truly transform security? Well, I, I, Wyatt, I think that's where this design strategy comes in uh, of, of doing this overlay, this sassy overlay, because without that as, as, as a glue that holds all these things together, all, all this, the data sources and pillars, I think we're at risk of, of having that piecemeal approach where we might have some good point solutions. You know, we, we've got great ICAM or great uh, user behavior analysis or where we're able to really tell down to a fine uh, uh, specific point about our device health. If these things aren't working together and, and, and being a coordinated way to, to pull information in to determine how much you're gonna trust that connection attempt then, then we haven't met our, our goal here with the zero trust architecture. So going down to somewhat maybe of a more one level down technically. Um, so without that unifying solution, I mean, how are we gonna pull all that really valuable information together to co coherently into like policy decision points and then over to a policy enforcement point so that both the decision and an action can be taken on using that data in, in real time. So we, at least in the department, we're gonna be looking for that sassy provider that's got a proven experience in success with an environment like ours of pulling all that information together, making it usable to make these security decisions. 
Paul Blahush, the Chief Information Security Officer at the Labor Department with FedScoop's Wyatt Cash. You can find a link to the video of that conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns on Tuesday. Till then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.